HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Inside Julia's Kitchen is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Employee-owned Bob's Red Mill offers organic, gluten-free, stone-ground products. Visit bobsredmill.com today. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, a podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Chef Danielle Blood, acclaimed chef and leading Franco-American restaurateur, humanitarian, cookbook author, and recipient of so many prestigious awards, I don't really have time to name them all, but trust me, they're all the very best ones. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Danielle about French chef Paul Bocuse's legacy, the global Bocuse door cooking competition, and our last segment, I'm eagerly awaiting Danielle's Julia moment. We'll be right back. In the first part of Inside Julia's Kitchen, we launched the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. At the risk of stating the obvious, few things were more important to Julia than France and French food. Not only did she consider France and its food the epitome of what it means to cook and eat well, but France was her spiritual home, where she had that aha moment that inspired her then lifelong passion. Another of Julia's passions was giving back, and to Julia that also very much meant giving back to her profession. She gave back as both a leader and a teacher, and not just to the public at large, but to those she worked with. Her commitment to the profession was everlasting and extensive. It would be impossible to list all the organizations to which Julia lent her time and energy. But chief among them were PBS, the International Association of Culinary Professionals, the James Beard House, and the American Institute for Wine and Food, 
When you think about people following in Julia's footsteps, Chef Danielle Blude has very similar devotions to Julia. A passion for bringing the best of French food at all levels to Americans from his home base at his flagship restaurant, Danielle, in New York City, from where he leads a team running a scant 13 restaurants in seven cities in four countries around the world. So it's difficult to think of someone more dedicated to his craft and profession than Danielle. Despite all that he oversees, Danielle still devotes a lot of time to giving back, and I mean giving back in a serious way. A passionate supporter of training other chefs to excel in the profession, he is tireless, and I mean I do not understand where his boundless energy comes from, but I suspect the secret could be eating a lot of fresh truffles, he can tell us later. I can think of no one better to talk about the legacy of Danielle's own mentor, Chef Paul Bocuse. Bocuse, fondly referred to by his own devoted mentees and fans as Monsieur Paul, and also known as the Pope of French cooking, Monsieur Paul sadly died at the tender age of 91 in January, and like Julia, just short of his 92nd birthday. So this felt like the right moment to examine his legacy, and there's no one better informed than Danielle. Welcome to the podcast, Danielle. Hello, Todd, and I'm so happy to be sharing this moment with you and your listener. Well, I'm really grateful you could be here. To, we're kicking off season two, and to do so to share your insights about Monsieur Paul and the Bocuse door. But I wanted to start off talking kind of specifically about Bocuse and who he was as a person, and particularly who he was to you. And you once said that he was the greatest influence on your life since you began cooking, which is a pretty big statement. And so I wanted to ask you, why, is, why has he particularly been so personally important to you? Well, um, I grew up in Lyon, <clears throat> outside of Lyon, and uh, Paul Bocuse, of course, uh, being the Pope of French cuisine, uh, he was definitely um, in Lyon, uh, the most uh, important person within the world of cooking. And I started at 14, and my first week at work was to go to Leal, the, the central market of Lyon, and go with my boss and help him carry the boxes from Leal to the restaurant. Uh, and my, um, my new boss at 14 was the best friend of Paul Bocuse, so, of course, uh, he proudly presented his new apprentice. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> of course, Paul Bocuse gave me a tap on the back. and <laughs> You know, kind of a welcome kid. But, um, you know, no relationship. Just like for me to witness such a giant in cooking already. Because he was already, uh, and I'm talking 1969, so that's not yesterday. It's a yesteryear, and uh, <laughs> and um, and he was already such uh, a powerful man within his own town. Everyone count on him, listen to him, uh, venerate him. But also, really, he was he, he was the leader of a movement uh, which just started around that time, which was Nouvelle Cuisine, and um, and I think. Uh, uh, I have seen so many generations of chefs um, during that period who were counting on Paul Bocuse's support in order to be sort of like making sure that they were um, in the right track, that they were uh, they were included in his circle as well. 
And uh, what's beautiful at that time is then, and we see it in every generation of chef, there is a little bit of a, um, uh, a circle was created uh, among the same generation of chefs who are uh, making some change or uh, creating some food who are um, sort of identifying the time. And uh, but but Danielle, do you th- do you think there's something about um, Sh- Monsieur Paul that was was special in terms of his ability to work with and mentor and train other chefs? Because there are plenty of other people on the scene who made some sort of impact, but but not not to de- develop the kind of devotion, um, particularly amongst other chefs, that Bocuse earned. Very much. And I, I think uh, at the time, what I witnessed uh, in the, uh, in, when Paul Bocuse really started to become uh, an, uh, um, one of the most important chefs in France is that he belonged also to those uh, associations of restaurants such as uh, Tradition et Qualité, uh, Les Grandes Tables du Monde, or uh, Relais Chateau. And this was kind of a... a, a uh, it was not a club, but it was also, besides being restaurateur associated under one uh, group of um, restaurants, uh, they were also exchanging chefs. They were making sure that it became also a school, a school of excellence, and, uh, and, and where a chef coming from a colleague uh, of this association coming to work with him, or him, Paul Bocuse, passing along one of his young chefs who had worked maybe a couple of years with him and now need to move on to Eberlin, or Trois-Gros, or Chapelle, or Pic, or um, Roger Verger, or Michel Guérard. At the time, they were kind of, there was always this trading happening of chefs, but there was also a lot about making sure that if you find talent, you need to help them grow and you need to help them have access. And it's, you know, having a reference from your previous chef is the best thing you can ask. Uh, You can, of course, always send your resume and wish they're going to take you, but Mm. one phone call does it rather than, uh, you know, in in those days, one phone call was more important than sending a resume. Where, where do you think that came from, though, with Bocuse in the sense of, again, I don't think everyone, well, well, that's very familiar to you because you have led by that example. It, it, it's not necessarily the norm. If every chef did that, we would have a very different restaurant and kitchen culture. Where was, what was, where did this devotion to the profession and, and, and to that camaraderie, do you think, came from with Bocuse? I think with Paul Bocuse, it was uh, definitely uh, camaraderie and respect and uh, you know, they all had the same ambition, but no one wanted to be exactly the same. And so it it became a very big school of learning because each chef, I mean, when you take a chef like Alain Sandorance versus Trois-Gros versus Verger, they were three very different styles and three very different disciplines. And, um, and so, you know, when, when uh, as a young chef, the importance was to do your Tour de France. And the Tour de France was to go from at least three or four restaurant chefs or five maybe in your career uh, as a young chef to be able to learn from them. And I think Paul Bocuse was very open to that. But Paul Bocuse is also a meilleur ouvrier de France. Uh, he was very ambitious as a chef. He was very 
are driven and uh, Meilleur Ouvrier de France is one of the most prestigious uh, reward. I mean, not only reward, but competition you can do in France and that gives you the possibility of becoming uh, every, every four years they have uh, maybe 20 chosen chefs or between 12 and 20 chosen chefs in France who become meilleur ouvrier de France. And, um, and, and that is uh, something who uh, Paul Bocuse, as, uh, as a chef, became a meilleur ouvrier de France, and then he became a leader in that field. He, he became uh, also very, very involved and engaged with training young chefs to become meilleur ouvrier de France as well. And so when you go today in the restaurant Paul Bocuse, beside all the chefs who has left him and earned the meilleur ouvrier de France, but the chefs who are working with him, there is, I think, within the restaurant L'Auberge, Uh, I think there is five Meilleur Ouvrier de France, five or six there, including service, including wine, wine service. And, and of course, in the kitchen. But then if you go to his brasserie in Lyon, Brasserie de l'Est, Brasserie de l'Ouest, he has also a cluster of Meilleur Ouvrier de France there. So, and, and those Meilleur Ouvrier de France, their responsibility is to teach the next generation as well of becoming a Meilleur Ouvrier de France, or at least to become a great chef. Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna ask you. It's it's almost there is a self interest in it, right? Because the classically the tradition was you apprentice to become a chef. There weren't there, and there still isn't as much a cooking school culture in France. And that it, it, in some ways, if you want to guarantee keep doing food and keep expanding at the level you want to do it at, you need really talented people coming up to help you. Very much, and and also um, let's face it. I mean, Paul Paul was very creative but he had huge respect for tradition and huge passion for tradition and uh, for him uh, first and foremost it was all about French cuisine. I think today a chef is much more open to a globalization of flavor uh, versus uh, Paul was very focused on French cuisine and uh, I think To become a great French chef, you almost had, it, it was almost a, um, a passage of uh, ritual of, of having to work for one of the great chefs like him. Hmm. So, so I heard Jacques Bepin once said about Bocuse that he, he did more than any other chef in the world to bring chefs into the dining room and to make the profession respectable and to make us who we are now. And I think that quote, that was from 2011. And I think to someone younger, that's a bit of a perplexing quote, like, well, aren't chefs already, you know, respectable and desired and people want to commune with them in the dining room. But I think Pepin was talking about the time back, maybe closer to 1969. So what's your view of what Jacques was talking about there? Of course. And I think uh, Paul Bocuse, early on, very in the early days already, when he, did, when he redid his kitchen, uh, when I visited the kitchen of Paul Bocuse the first time, is basically as you walk into the restaurant, there's a big window overlooking the entire kitchen. And uh, the stove area and all the, the hot lines and, and, and the, uh, a part of the kitchen. And, and I think uh, also the guest was always invited to come and visit the kitchen. And 
of course, Paul Bocuse had his presence in the dining room as well. And I think this became uh, almost like uh, with the new generation, with Nouvelle Cuisine, the new generation of chef, uh, the chef was presented as an artist as well, not only just a laborer on the back, and uh, but he was also as uh, he was presented as uh, Paul Bocuse wanted to make sure that you know if you buy the best ingredient, if you make the best cooking, then be proud to just you know don't don't hide yourself in the back <laughs> mm-hmm. and and really communicate about it and. And be able to communicate, be able to make people feel special by what you do. And I think um, today, of course, Paul Bocuse have opened many restaurants during his career, especially in Lyon. I'm looking at Lyon. And he had created those brasseries where the entire kitchen is open into the dining room. And... (laughs) And uh, this is not a novelty today, but, uh, you know, 20 years ago and all that, uh, it wasn't so um, familiar than the entire kitchen was open. And he was very, while he was very traditional, he always liked new things. He always wanted to bring new things. He always mm. wanted to also make himself accessible to his local clientele. Uh, he knew that not everybody could afford to go to Paul Bocuse every day. But they mm. could almost afford to go to this brasserie every day. Yeah, no, and, and that that goes into. I was just thinking about the fact that you know when Bocuse was was cooking, because traditionally or historically, France certainly had chefs as celebrated artists. If you go back to people like Carême, but maybe do you think it was because of having survived first World War One and then World War Two? a lot of that ability to luxuriate in the chef as artist and in food had to be put on the back burner and was almost maybe not erased, but certainly lost. And do you think that it was that post-war emergence that kind of, and then he just put a kind of newer spin on it? Oh, very much. And and, and you have to remember that uh, before Paul Bocuse, it was Fernand Point. It was, uh, there were um, maybe a dozen of chefs in France who were starting to really make uh, an impact in the industry. And, and, uh, uh, and this was really post-war. And uh, Paul Bocuse came uh, after that a little bit as, as a professional and uh, in his reputation, he was more in the 60s, but I'm talking like late 40s, 50s, 60s. Uh, Fernand Point was the driving force of the cuisine lyonnaise with La Mer Brasier, with uh, many of uh, Joannes Nandron, who was uh, the father of my um, the, the the chef I was working for when I was an apprentice, and and they were all the driving force, and they were all focusing on on changing the cuisine already from Escoffier. And mm. uh, but also because Escoffier had become more of a continental cuisine, and Fernand Point was more about coming back to the local ingredient, and 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 you know maybe Escoffier said to do this way and this way, but he wasn't taking note, uh, he wasn't putting importance on the locality of things, more on the technique and the recipe, uh, versus Fernand Point. Fernand Point was really putting a strong emphasis on 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 the, the ingredient itself, the locality, and I think the suppliers. And uh, and, and I think Paul Bocuse, uh, it was a declic because he felt and 
what he learned at Fernand Point was so personal as a cuisine and all that, then he got to continue in that journey with himself and, and to bring everybody with it. Yeah, that just reminded me of sort of the idea, too, of bringing in regionalism. Once sort of an Escoffier standard was global, then you had to figure out ways to, to be more distinct. And that reminded me of, you know, Anne Willen taught me the proper way to make a French omelette. And then I was watching Julia do it, and Julia did it entirely differently. And then I realized the proper way to make an omelette or particularly the French way to make an omelette, is entirely dependent on the French chef who's taught you to make that omelette. Totally. And uh, uh, omelette, I mean, every chef thinks there's a way to make an omelette. Um, some like to cook it slow, some like to cook it fast, some like to cook it... <laughs> but they will tell you this is the one way, right, to properly uh, cook an omelette in, in French cooking. Some like to right. think then it has to have a little bit of a color and some other think then there should not absolutely be any color on the omelette. Uh, uh, but uh, Paul Bocuse is, for that, he knew very well his classic. And he could, uh, and he had also a lot of uh, passion for... Um, a certain rusticity in the cuisine, and yet it, the part of the menu was evolving all the time and cr and creating new new classic, and part of the menu was really classic. As you know, like for example, he loved to make very uh, old-fashioned dishes who didn't belong to his repertoire, but who he felt was important to continue to to protect those dishes to to have them uh, be um, sort of known for every new generation as well. And um, he, was, he was evoking a certain narrative, right? And his view of what he thought it meant to be a chef and what French food both was and is and would be, you know? Very much. And I think that's what I've learned the most is then uh, for, for Paul Bocuse, uh, you can... Uh, when when he does uh, a soup à la jambe de bois, or when he's, uh, which is kind of a a, a, a soup of beef uh, with big beef shanks, who are uh, coming out, the bones are coming out of the of the of the soup, and almost like a pot au feu in a way, and mm -hmm. and uh, and he always loved also to entertain for an audience, a group, and. Um, Sometime, often, he will create a breakfast. And he kept that tradition. He will create a breakfast for his friend in Lyon. All the suppliers, all the local chefs, all the friends will come. And he will make a big breakfast of the most gargantuesque dishes of the past. And, and his generosity, his passion, his love for friendship, for food, for uh, for you know, the sense of holding, holding into the community around the table uh, was very important. And at the Bocuse d'Or, which we haven't spoke about the Bocuse d'Or competition, but uh, every two years in Lyon, there is this um, competition who um, uh, will bring uh, every, every, um, yeah, every, every two years, yeah, every right. two years, yeah. Uh, will bring 24 countries to Lyon. And and after the competition, uh, after the two days of competition, the next morning is the uh, the plate was, was putting in the floor 
in, of the entrance of the Paul Bocuse Auberge, which is made of bronze, and those plates is for the gold, the silver, and the bronze winner of the Bocuse d'Or. And following the plate ceremony, to was uh, put in uh, on the on the floor that with the names and the country and all that and there is all the lineup of all those countries and names and winners were engraved on the floor as you walk into the auberge um, he put out one of the most lavish breakfast of all time and that is kind of you know uh, a throwback from the past but at the same time uh, uh, always been what Paul is about Yeah, what a symbol of, of welcome, of beyond the new and all that. We're going to come back to the Boku's door because I want to talk about that in the second half. I wanted to ask you one last thing before we take a break. I love this quote that was um, from Boku's, and I've taken this out of order because he was, he was responding to a question. But the, the quote is, this is a quote in English, I'm sure it sounds better in French, but God is already famous, but that doesn't stop the preacher from ringing the church bells every morning. And I think he was defending his reputation as a self-promoter. And, and in some ways, he was this bigger-than-life self-promoter, but he did it in a natural way. I was curious what you thought, because I, th I think you were maybe not quite as bombastic a, a fellow despite your success. But what do you think that message and how Paul Bocuse was out there like that kind of teaches today's chef, or what should they really take away from it? Well, I think Paul Bocuse took the full responsibility of promoting French cuisine and uh, promoting French chef and, and, and helping every generation coming. And, and I think that's his passion. Uh, was, uh, his passion was to make sure that um, he will always be who he is, but he'll always be also an influence for the next generation and an aspiration and uh, a sort of a, a, a driving force in, um, in his... Uh, own industry of uh it was i think but what what do you think do you think all i guess my question was slightly different than about bocuse himself but do, do you think all modern chefs need to be ringing their church bells every day and being on tv and in competitions and um to make it work no but uh i think the only you work is maybe not enough And I think uh, being able to have opportunity to get involved with other things, being able to have opportunity to express yourself in many different ways, I think that's very important. I think Paul Bocuse also loved, uh, he loved the media and he knew how to entertain them. He knew how to give them uh, something we were going to give them the opportunity to continue to talk about. Uh, his work and he knew that it was important as a whole for uh, for the generation to come to be able to uh, you know rumble the drums uh, about cuisine in Lyon in France in the world. I see. All right. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back, and then we'll get Daniel to talk to us more about the Boku's Door competition that he was just talking about with that famous breakfast that ends it. We'll go back to the beginning before you get to the breakfast. We'll be right back.
As promised, we went back into Leo and Lucy's test kitchen to pit Bob's Red Mill Protein Pancake and Waffle Mix against Bob's Red Mill Grain-Free Paleo Pancake and Waffle Mix. This time, we swapped out the paleo-friendly coconut oil for still gluten-free sunflower oil. Our findings? We found the change meant that the grain-freeze, pleasing nutty flavor was less overwhelmed by the coconut. We're also reminded of a pancake cooking tip. You have to use a hot skillet to get the pancakes to sear and rise properly. Hence the old expression, throw out the first pancake. That's usually because your pan wasn't hot enough. It's also made a difference in getting the grain-free pancakes to look and taste like you'd expect them to. In the end, our scrupulous taste testers were pretty satisfied with both outcomes, polishing off four apiece in minutes. It's all a reminder that when you're looking for great-tasting, quality, healthy food, take it from Leo and Lucy, you can count on Bob's Red Mill. Visit bobsredmill.com today and use the discount code JuliasKitchen, all one word in all caps, for valuable savings on Bob's Red Mill products, including their pancake and waffle mixes. For those who might not have already been familiar with Monsieur Paul or his creation of the global cooking competition for professional chefs, which is called the Boku's Door, which was started in 1987, um, I read to promote a trade fair in Lyon, which is also Danielle's hometown, as he mentioned. And it's often referred to as the Olympics of the chef world. And Danielle is probably one of the best people to bring us up to speed as he just started um, jumping ahead into his enthusiasm for all the unique aspects of the Boku's Door. Um, so, so Danielle, why do you feel the Boku's Door is so important? I think you feel that, you know, I know from talking to you, it's not just important to chefs, it's important to American chefs. So w- why does it matter so much? Well, uh, I think, again, Paul Bocuse, part of his uh, dream in life, as he was, uh, you have to realize then uh, in the 70s, 60s, 70s, uh, he was one of the first chefs who came to America and uh, started to, uh, he was cooking at Mondavi uh, Winery in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, and he brought all his friends with it. Okay, I mean, every time he was coming to California, he would bring two or three chefs with him. And Bob Mondavi was really one of the pioneers in in uh, making French chef famous in America, but also he was able to present them to American talent at the time also. And, uh, and Paul Bocuse could see it and uh, going around the world in Japan, in Australia, in America, in South America. He had a restaurant in the early 80s. He had a restaurant in Rio de Janeiro. He had a restaurant in uh, Tokyo. He had a restaurant in the U.S. He started also with Orlando uh, restaurant. And, and um, he could see the merging talent, uh, the, this kind of youth growing everywhere, which in the kitchen had ambition and wanted to uh, certainly make their own revolution there. And um, and so by the late 80s, he created the Bocuse d'Or. He wanted to do a competition among chefs, which they will come from many different countries. So there weren't 24 countries at the time. Right now, the Bocuse d'Or is a competition where 50... Uh, almost uh, 50 countries or 48 countries are selected and only 24 are kept to compete in Lyon. 
So the selection are in Asia, the selection are in South America and or the Americas and Europe, mostly. And those three continents uh, bring back 24 countries total. And uh, I think this was way before television, way before uh, reality uh, TV, where, mm -hmm. you know, like Iron Chef or Top Chef or Master mm -hmm. Chef. Or, uh, and But it's the same idea. Maybe you should describe because it's pretty intense. When, and originally that you didn't have this sort of double elimination that's from the expansion. But it is very much you train and train and train for what you can do, right, to show off your techniques. But at the end of the day, right, you're given a set and you... You, of ingredients and you go in real time, no? Absolutely. And uh, and and what uh, Paul Bocuse wanted to make sure, and, and this was a, a, a competition where there's a public watching you and there's the supporter of every country joining you. So uh, it's, 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 it's really... Uh, an arena uh it's 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 uh it's sort of back to the gladiator <laughs> where <laughs> where each chef in their box <laughs> but no one dies no one dies no 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 <laughs> but but uh, but i think i i think the, the, that's a great point about the importance of the public audience and public per participation as part of it but then also don't you think because there's so much training that goes in that the teams put in to to compete but at the same time right when you're there in the moment it's it's about the application of your training to the ingenuity that chefs as artists can display, no? Very much. And and I think uh, the Bocuse d'Or uh, has grown and grown to become uh, one of the most prestigious chef competition in the world. So it does not mean because you are a, a great chef and maybe a famous chef, you may not like to do competition. And that's fine. But I really believe then for us... Uh, and in France or in America or in many other countries, the Bocuse d'Or is a wonderful opportunity for young chefs to challenge themselves to their limit, but also to be able to represent their country as a, as a candidate. And I think this is uh, like the Olympic. You know, not. Uh, I mean, many people can run. Many people can do a lot of different uh, discipline in sport, but that's not mean they're going to go to the Olympic. I think for the mm. Olympic, you have to have the stamina, you have to have the ambition, you have to have the dream, and and you have to have the talent. Uh, and I think uh, what we always look for every two years is to select someone who has all that and be able to compete at the top level. Because uh, So uh, going back, America has been participating in most of the Bocuse d'Or uh, in Lyon. And uh, about 10 years ago, Paul Bocuse, uh, 12 years ago, um, after Gavin Kaysen competed in uh, 07, Paul Bocuse felt that um, Gavin was a very young chef and he was not supported by the talent Paul Bocuse were proud of in America, such as Thomas Keller, myself, and many other chefs. And, and he, he felt that he, he, could have been, he could have done better if he had been surrounded by the proper support. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, and Gavin was a warrior. He was <laughs> a hero at the time because he really, at his very young age of 26, 
uh, he, he went there and just wanted to represent America, and he had the, and he did an amazing job, but challenging because he was not assisted so much. Um, and from that, uh, he asked me, Paul Bocuse asked me if I could take care of the Bocuse door in America, if I could really uh, supervise this team. And he wanted also a president, and he wanted Thomas Keller to be the president of the Bocuse door uh, team in the in the U.S. So he he was getting Olympic serious. You you guys were becoming the the American Olympic Committee uh, and training committee for the Bocuse door because he felt that America should be better represented and doing better. But he knew that other countries put a lot more of a nationally organized resource into training for it. Is that right? Not only that, of course, because when you look at Scandinavia, for example. Denmark is 7 million people, Sweden is 5 million, Norway is another 5 or 7. So basically that those little countries, each one of them were on the podium. And that bothered Paul because he felt like America, you are so big as a country. There's no way. Why are you not on the podium yourself one day? And uh, yeah, I was going to ask you that. Why, why do you think these? Why have these Nordic countries that, as you say, have such small populations, have been so successful? Is is it training, or 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 is there a lot of ingenuity because their scarce their resources are more limited? Yes, but also because they were really they created uh, a a legacy of chef and talent to be trained for it, and. Uh, and so there was uh, a, uh, each country had a chef who was in charge of this uh, organization, and they were really investing a lot of their time, a lot of their resources and support in order to be able not only to train the candidate who will go to Lyon, but to train also the next candidate maybe, and to to be a little bit ahead with it, and to to have the opportunity to uh, to. Once they understood how to win, I think that was uh, that was key for them is to understand how to win this competition by investing uh, time and not only money but time and resources and support to the candidate who was going to do it and creativity and 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 really taking it the most seriously and and the um, and I think we did that in New York and uh, with Thomas Keller in in America. And for the last six competitors who have been to Lyon, uh, every time we were getting better. And of course, three years ago, we did silver with Phil Tessier, the chef. And last year, we did uh, gold with Matt Peters. And Paul Bocuse could witness both moments. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what do, what do you think that meant or signified for America to have gotten serious and to have finally won gold in, in, in 2017? Well, uh, of course, it means everything to Paul Bocuse. I mean, to us in America, it was also the... First, we wanted to fulfill Paul Bocuse's dream. Then America one day will be on the podium and America will have gold. Uh, but at the same time, for Thomas Keller, for myself, for everyone associated with the Bocuse d'Or, uh, and we have a, a, a foundation now. Who we created a foundation called Mentor, uh, BKB, and it's all about nurturing the next generation by giving opportunity to give them grants 
and continue to learn and become great chef one day themselves. I mean, we want them to be better than us. But uh, so, and, and to also understand the Bocuse d'Or, the competition, and maybe start to dream about it early. I, I think that's fascinating what you said that Bocuse's dream was to have America win. Oh, and yeah. as a French chef in France, so can we dive into that a little bit more? That That's an amazing sense of generosity to say, I think America should win my competition in France that, you know, the, it has certainly quite a month. A great deal of French national pride to it. What, what, what was that? Is that just his generosity of spirit, or why? Yes. Why is that? And also, why was that his dream? You know, Paul Bocuse always said, and he's a little American because during the, <laughs> during the war he got uh, during the war he got injured and he got he got shot somewhere, and he had to have a blood transfusion, and he was in an American camp, and he had American blood. Ah, there, there. So he was infected with his showmanship went by the American military. And he say, you know, then he owe everything to the American, uh, not only to be alive, but to also maybe that American blood gave him that je ne sais quoi, who made him so so powerful, and and uh, maybe uh, so ambitious in life, and and also his love for America. I mean, he was really the first French chef ever to to sign a contract with Disney. And, uh, you know, everybody thought, huh. I mean, Paul Bocuse with Mickey Mouse, that's a, mm. that's a joke. But actually, Disney was so smart to create those pavilions, the French pavilion, the Canadian pavilion, the Mexican mm. pavilion, the Italian pavilion at, at Epcot. And Paul Bocuse felt this is going to be, I mean, Epcot Center will be the center of the world and France should be represented. And I understand my responsibility to go there and do it and do it right. And mm. and still today, 40 years later, I mean, it's uh, one of the best pavilion in Disney, the French pavilion. Wow. And it's run by Jérôme Bocuse, his son now. And so his love and passion and understanding for America and the talent, he knew about the talent in America. He knew that America could do better. It was just a question of connecting the chef of the, of the right generation into the Bocuse d'Or and, uh, and, and uh, a chef who is also uh, already... Um, involve and engage with mentorship with training young chef and and he felt that Thomas uh, Keller will be uh, the uh, the will be the most important chef to be able to support Bocuse d'Or and um yeah, I want I did, I did, before we run out of time, I just wanted you to expand upon a little bit what Mentor BKB Foundation is doing. And in particular, I think what shouldn't get lost in in the whole focus on competition, which certainly people are very familiar, as you say, from reality TV. But I think this huge theme that runs through between your relationship with Bocuse and Bocuse picking you and Keller is there's a tremendous theme of, of, of mentoring other people to excel and do better and continue that. And that's very much 
a, a huge part of of the Bocuse d'Or. Yes, but it's also part of Mentor. So Bocuse d'Or, it's in our foundation, uh, in our foundation Mentor BKB. Uh, Bocuse d'Or is a portion we manage, we take care of, we we just did the the selection for the Americas, uh, and we won gold there in Mexico last week. No, and congratulations! <laughs> yes, so that was pre the the first competition before Lyon next year. We had to select to go to Lyon in 2019. But the mentor is about we raise money and we have been given about 1.3 million so far in the last uh, five years of grants to young chef. Uh, young chef has to make a compelling uh, presentation of why they deserve a grant from us. And this grant will give the opportunity for the young chef to not only keep his job, but take a, a sort of a three months uh, sabbatical. sabbatical and, and to get a salary from it, to get all expense paid to travel and to choose the, to who else he wants to learn from. And that give him an opportunity to be able to uh, choose, uh, let's say, a chef working in New York want maybe to go and work in California in a three-star restaurant for three months, or they want to go to Europe or Japan or Spain. And and uh, those young chefs, uh, they they are not students anymore. They are usually cooks, chef de partie, maybe junior sous chef, and they apply. And uh, we give about twenty-five grant a year to, uh, at least and and uh, and this is really wonderful and rewarding and transforming young chef life because they feel like uh, those opportunities never come uh, you know you have to quit your job you have to take a lot of risk you have to it take a lot of money to be able to move yourself uh, from one place to another and and being a stagiaire is not given to everyone and this opportunity give them the opportunity to do a stage and and witness yeah it really helps break down the the barriers to entry so that the people who are most motivated and talented can 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 come it's a great reward and 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 uh, and we continue to do that and we uh, continue to look at education and mentorship and uh, not only we mentor young chefs to be able to be part of the bocus d'or team and uh, the, that circle, but also young chefs who maybe are not interested about competition, but want to become greater chef and have the opportunity to see something else beside uh, what they do every day in the chef they work with. And um, and this has been very rewarding. Uh, Mentor, we have a, a culinary council of about 50 chefs all over America, and they are all involved with the foundation and supporting us. Uh, and we are all supporting each other in a way and doing I was just going to say, I think I didn't expect that the, 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 in addition to talking so much about mentorship, that today's episode, the theme would really be all about camaraderie and um, how important th that is. I think that that's an exceptional thing to sort of sum up Bocuse's um, uh, legacy in, in and of itself. Very much. So, and, and, that, and that's why I think Monto, it's about this fraternity we have together and this responsibility we have for helping the next generation. Maybe, you know, we, we did well with, uh, with the support we had, but we believed that we could have done better if we had what we are bringing today to young chefs. 
All right, we're going to stop there because I know that Danielle will have a really good Julia moment to talk about since he knew her so well. So um, I don't want to lose at, uh, lose or run out of time to do that. So we're going to be right back and we're here. Uh, Danielle's Julia moment. We'll be right back. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she inspired them in their career. Danielle, what's your Julia moment? Oh, my Julia moment was, of course, with Julia in their kitchen, uh, cooking a segment where I remember I was opening my restaurant in uh, 25 years ago because I'm celebrating Restaurant Daniel 25 years ago now, this Yay. year. It's our 25th anniversary and it was about 25 years ago when I came to cook with Julia in Boston at um, in Somerville. I think it was some... Uh, at her house or somewhere yeah, else? Yeah, at her house. At her house. In Cambridge then? In Cambridge. That's where the show was run. Yep. And... Uh, and the the most uh, fascinating thing is that I came in the morning early. They told me to come around seven o'clock, so I came just before seven o'clock, and uh, even even the earlier than that, like maybe six thirty. And and Julia was already down on their desk typing recipes, typing letters, typing, uh, and and she was uh, already sort of fully engaged and ready to do the show. She was so excited. And, and we cooked a Côte de Veau and sweet bread with chamomile. And um, she had used chamomile for other purpose, but never to cook with meat, such as white meat, which chamomile is delicate and white uh, veal it was delicate. And I think uh, I had the most wonderful time with Julia making this recipe, who was a uh, one of the dish I had on the menu at Restaurant Daniel when I opened the restaurant 25 years ago. And it always... And, and are we going to see it again for the anniversary year? <laughs> yes. But at, at the same time, you can also, I think, watch that segment online somehow into the archive of Julia's Kitchen. Wow. Well, that, that, that's quite amazing. I mean, that, 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 that's a pretty hard memory to top. Not only did you cook with Julia in her kitchen for her show, what, 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 a, what a wonderful privilege and, and I would assume a vividly lasting memory. Absolutely. I cooked for Julia many, many times at Le Cirque when I was the chef at Le Cirque. I cooked with Julia when I was at the Plaza Athene in New York. I, uh, I met Julia. She didn't meet me, but I met her or saw her uh, at the Moulin de Mougin in the late 70s when I was, or mid-70s when I was there in Cannes, near Cannes, because she had a house who was in Valbonne. 
and she will come and dine at the Moulin with Simone Beck and all her friends uh, down to uh, the Moulin de Mougin. And uh, the station I was working at the little window where we could see all the guests coming in and out on the way to the parking lot. <laughs> and so <laughs> I, one day I saw Julia passing by. And of course, we all knew that that was Julia because they, she came to the kitchen to say hello to Roger Verger. So, you know, when you're a young cook, you stay on your side and you don't say anything, but you witness that. And, and that was then the time. And uh, I had many occasions. Uh, well, what an, what an amazing full circle to go from that that meeting or, or, or sort of exposure in the 70s to coming back to her legacy podcast. That's, that's, that's a great way to close up. Thank you so much for joining us, Danielle. I really appreciate it. And especially for, for all you do. And someday you'll have to write a book about your secret to doing more than any other human being can do. Thank you. Thank you. And I want to say about Juliet, and uh, three years ago, I rented a house in Valbonne, and that was the house of Simon Beck, next door to the little house of Julia, where I was every day looking at the kitchen and <laughs> imagining how Julia was living down there. <laughs> it was a fun that's so Yeah, no, I remember seeing you right before you were doing that. That's so lovely that you were able to do that and, and that we're both able to, to carry on all of these people's very important legacy and, and keep them alive for future generations. Fun memories, absolutely. Well, thanks for being here, Danielle, and thank you for listening. Let us know what you think about today's show. You can reach us via email or even you can send us a voice memo, contact at joyachildfoundation.org. You can follow us on Facebook, search at Julia Child, and you can follow the foundation on Twitter. Our Twitter handles at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T Shulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N. We're on Instagram. You can search Julia Child Foundation, all one word. If you want to learn more about Danielle and his many extraordinary restaurants, including the 25th anniversary year at Danielle in New York, um, which I can personally recommend, um, go to DanielleNYC.com. And you can follow Danielle on social media. He's very switched on. And uh, his handle is at Danielle Bouloud. It's B-O-U-L-U-D. And uh, he's also on Facebook at either at Chef Danielle Bouloud or Restaurant Danielle. Thanks to WGBH for the Joy of Child audio clip from The French Chef. And thanks to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, David Tatashore. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. Thanks to all you listeners for coming back for season two. Please remember to give us a review so new listeners can discover what they missed in season one. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss upcoming episodes. A reminder that we're now on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, so downloads will be available one day later than you might have been used to in Season 1. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Joya's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization 
driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.